chapter 5. On Sunday night, we are uh, studying the book of gospel, the gospel of uh, Matthew, as we're making our way through the scriptures. And uh, we're going to pull a passage out of what we look to study this evening, chapter 5, and and hopefully get through about half of chapter 6 this evening. And uh, so we want to look at several verses this morning out of that passage. If you're with us today and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles with Bibles right now, and you just wave at them. They'll put a Bible in your hands, already marked to the passage that we're studying today. And then please, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. Red letters, the words of our Savior. Speaking to the disciples, to us. You, and I want to just let that word sink in. You, if you're a Christian here this morning, he's talking to you right now. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for every bit of instruction that you give us from your word. We think about where we would be in life if we didn't have your Bible, if we didn't have your truth, and just to have all of these things that were told us by, <clears throat> excuse me, other people all the goofy things that come up in our own heart and our own minds and not to have something to test all of those thoughts and those ideas by. No place to turn and to know this is a solid place to build our lives upon and to build our eternities upon. And we thank you that your word is that. We thank you that it is truth and it is truth that sanctifies us. It's truth that is alive. And we pray, Lord, that this truth that we read this morning and we're about to study, that it would sanctify us and that it would produce and provide a further strengthening of the foundation, the Christian foundation that is in our lives and our understanding of your call upon our lives as your disciples, as your children. So we pray for that work of your Holy Spirit and we ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We live in an age of great moral and practical corruption and darkness. We're not going to dwell on it this morning. But I don't think anybody that's keeping their eyes open and their ears open and certainly nobody that's filled with the Holy Spirit can in any way doubt that that is the world that we live in. The corruption, I think, and the darkness is so great today that it's easy for a Christian to begin to feel 
powerless in the face of it, to become hopeless in the midst of it. We can find ourselves being tempted to think things like, what difference can we make? Things have gone too far. There's no way they can turn back around. What influence do we have anymore as Christians within the culture, especially now that sin is not only so prevalent, but it's now protected by state law and protected by federal law. And sometimes it can just feel like the whole war has been lost and all that we can do is just hold on to our own salvation and just uh, huddle in churches in the various cities that we find ourselves in and hold on for the rapture. But this passage of Scripture, Jesus declares us as Christians to be uniquely powerful and uniquely influential in the world. Uniquely powerful and influential for God and for good and that we are that no matter where we find ourselves in the course of human history and no matter what the condition of the world is at the moment that we're living in it. And, of course, this is tremendous news for us as Christians because the desire of our heart, once we've become Christians, is not just, okay, I got my fire insurance, I know where I'm going to end up on on the other side of this life and into eternity. I'm living a life of obedience with God, you know, at least trying to and making progress and being conformed into the image of Christ. But when the Holy Spirit comes into our lives and we're born again by the Holy Spirit, there's a desire to be influential for God's kingdom in the city that we're in, in the environments that we're in. We want everybody to know the life that we have. None of us wants to keep this life a secret. We want every person that isn't a Christian yet to become a Christian. And we want to be an influence for good and for God and the culture and in the part of the world that he has put us in. And this isn't some kind of a grinding obligation where we say, all right, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Now, this is something that you have to be. And so roll up your sleeves and uh, give it your best. And we know that everybody else is living a better life than that. But this is what you're destined to do as Christians and just kind of grind it out through the rest of your life. But that is in our attitude toward it. To be filled with the Spirit and then to be told that I have the potential to be salt in this life, to be light in this world, that is a truth and a reality that excites the Christian who is filled with the Holy Spirit. We want the whole world to know God. We want the whole world to obey God. We want them to experience the quality of life that comes out of all of that, to worship him and to, to, uh, and to obey him and then, and not only for his glory, but also for their good. The Merriam Webster dictionary defines the word influence in this way. The power to change or affect someone or something. Goes on to say this. The power to cause changes without directly forcing them to happen. The power uh, 
to cause changes without directly forcing them to happen. That's very good. And that's very important. We cannot force people to change. Maybe you've noticed that. (laughs) We cannot force people to change. We cannot force them to turn from selfishness or to turn from sin and to turn toward God and to turn toward good, but we can influence them to do so. God could force every single person to do that, and he doesn't because he gives people a free choice whether they're going to accept him and reject him or reject him or accept his way and his truth and walk in it or reject that. So he could force people, and he doesn't. We can't force people. That's not even an option that we have at all. So often I read an article or a blog by uh, some Christian, and uh, there always seems to be some group uh, within Christianity that wants to take uh, all of us as Christians to task for the moral and the spiritual condition of the nation that we live in. And so they chasten me through the blog or through the article, and that if we had only been the Christians that we ought to have been, you know, back in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s, then the United States of America would not be in the moral and the spiritual condition that it's in today, and they lay the lashes on and and all, and the idea that if we'd only been more committed and more holy, the world would be a different world than the one that we live in. It's all of our fault. And all of that kind of stuff is, number one, it's maddening to me, but it is overly simplistic. Overly simplistic. Yes, as Christians, we, as Christians as a whole, we can be guilty of failing to live up to our calling, fail to resist evil and, and its advance as we might, but very often the advance of evil occurs simply because an ever-increasing number of people love darkness, and they don't want anything to do with light. That's a choice they make, and it's a choice that they're free to make at this time. We do not, as Christians, have absolute power in this regard. We simply possess influence. But influence in the hands of the Holy Spirit is very, very powerful stuff. Notice that Jesus declares us as Christians to be the salt of the earth. I mean, what in the world does that mean? His audience would have understood it completely. I mean, the the moment it came out of his mouth, a metal picture would have been produced within their minds. What salt did then, what it does today, same thing, but it was used in this application more in the ancient world, But what salt did both then and does today is that it preserves, it hinders the spread of corruption or rottenness. In the ancient world, uh, salt was used as a preservative. They didn't have refrigerators in the ancient world. It's a shock for people. They didn't even have an iPad. They didn't have an iPad? Wow, how old? 
So there was no refrigeration in the ancient world. And because there wasn't refrigeration, salt was used for the preservation uh, as a preservative for meat. It would be rubbed into the meat in order to kill all of the surface bacteria. And as a result, it would resist that uh, tendency of that meat to then rot. And as Jesus is speaking this Sermon on the Mount, he is within a stone's throw almost of the Sea of Galilee while he's declaring all of this. And they would have known exactly what he was saying in that context, in that area. These were either fishermen or they were people who knew somebody in their family or their sphere of influence that was fishermen. And as Jesus is perhaps even giving this Sermon on the Mount, that night's catch of fish would have been brought to shore. Most of it would have been sold fresh there in the area of the Galilee, eaten by the locals. But a portion of it would have been then carried overland to cities that were inland in Jerusalem, away from water, in Israel, away from water, cities like Jerusalem. And they would then have heavily salted the meat in order for it not to rot or to go bad on the way. And in all of this, Jesus is declaring that morally and spiritually, this fallen world is like unrefrigerated meat. It is corrupt, it is decaying, it is rotting, and that left to itself, it will only grow worse and worse. But that one of God's purposes for us as Christians being in this world is that he would use our lives to resist the advancement of that corruption and that rottenness. I mean, after all, here we are, we become Christians. And uh, so why at the moment we become Christians doesn't Jesus just kind of individually rapture each one of us into heaven? Why does he keep us around when heaven is ultimately our home, our destination, where we're headed to? One of the reasons that he keeps us around is to be this kind of an influence in the world in which we are living in, that we might be a preserving influence in the world, one that resists the uh, advance and the spread of corruption. I think the world has, and I know this to be a fact, the world has no idea what it owes to the influence of Christians in this world. What it owes to the influence of Christians in its schools, in its workplaces, its homes, its neighborhoods, its government, and so forth. And while so much of the culture now, as it moves towards sin, they recognize that the great obstacle to going headlong into sin or having their sin legitimized is Christians and Christians who believe in and live by this book. It's an acknowledgement by what is rotten and what is corrupt by the one thing that is allowing or that is, uh, is, is um, hindering the advancement of the corruption that they want to introduce into the nation, whatever the sin might be. But we're recognized to be that. And so at this point in time, uh, more and more as kind of the tables turn, we're looked as, as the bad guys and there is a failure to appreciate the preserving influence that we are having upon the culture 
that we're in. One day that influence is going to be removed. And at the rapture of the church, uh, Jesus is going to remove his church, the influence of his church in the world, and then the world is going to be able to just rush headlong into all of the sin and all of the corruption and all of the rottenness without any resistance at all from God's people or the Holy Spirit. And it's not going to turn into the world that they think it's going to be. It's not going to be taking the quantum leap and, you know, the next kind of social evolution of mankind. The result will be a literal hell on earth called the Great Tribulation Period. So as Christians, we are called to make a stand against the moral and spiritual and practical corruption of this world. And Jesus gives us a warning here that we must not ever, 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 ever lose our flavor or our saltiness, our distinctiveness, in other words, become conformed to this world. He says, otherwise, we will become, as he says there, good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. We will become good for nothing as it relates to making a difference for God uh, in this world. We will be useless uh, to both God and man for eternal purposes. So clearly, Jesus is teaching that we do not influence the world in this way by becoming like the world. We do not uh, become in becoming like the world morally and spiritually. I mean, fads come in terms of fashion, how people cut their hair, all of these different kinds of things, and I'm talking about stuff like that. But we don't allow ourselves to become fashioned morally or spiritually by the world. If we do, if we lose that distinctiveness, then we will end up being overrun by the corruption of the world. We'll be powerless in order to resist it. We may become very popular as Christians, very relevant as Christians, and uh, physically and, and uh, emotionally and intellectually, but we will end up being completely non-influential uh, spiritually. How does a person lose their flavor or their saltiness as a Christian? Well, settling into a life of deliberate disobedience to the Word of God, that will do it. That will take the distinctiveness off of our life. Another thing that will do that, again, compromising the standard of God's Word. Living one life with one foot in the world, one foot in the church, that takes... that. That is, uh, that is salt losing its distinctiveness. Certainly to backslide uh, is to lose my distinctiveness. To become lukewarm in my relationship with the Lord is to lose my distinctiveness. And all of those things, they destroy our influence for God in the world. And really, without being an influence for God in the world, we're just kind of wasting our time as Christians. But people wouldn't see it that way, but we're not other people. If we aren't being an influence here, we're just wasting our lives. As the Apostle Paul, he wrote to the church at Philippi, he says, For to me to live is Christ. I mean, what brings meaning and purpose to our life is that we're making a difference spiritually in the world. And, and so to lose that is to just lose the meaning and the purpose that God wants to have uh, 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 influencing through our lives. Notice, too, Jesus declares us then to be the light of the world. We are the light of the world. So this tells us that we're not only living in a world that is corrupt and rotting, 
morally and spiritually, but it is also morally and spiritually dark. And it's important to understand that. You say, boy, I don't know. I mean, the assessment of the world as being morally and spiritually corrupt and rotting and the, and the spiritual moral condition of the world as being, uh, spiritually speaking, being uh, and morally being dark. But that's the assessment of the entire world since the time of the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. It's always been true and true even today. So Jesus is telling us that our lives bring to the spiritual and the moral darkness of this world what physical light brings to a physically dark room. So you picture it in your mind. Here you are, you're sitting in a room and it's absolutely pitch black. And someone then walks into the room carrying a lantern. You go, wow! What a difference that lamp! You could no more ignore that lantern than be the man in the moon. It immediately makes a difference in that room. And what happens on a physical level with a lantern being brought into a pitch black room, that immediate difference that it makes, so it is with the spiritual realm, Jesus is telling us, when a Christian enters into what is otherwise a dark moral uh, or dark spiritual environment, this is the impact that they have. And when a Christian walks into that environment and is walking in communion with God, obeying his word, filled with the Holy Spirit, they are going to change the whole atmosphere morally and spiritually that room. It doesn't mean everybody's going to stop cussing. It doesn't mean everybody's going to stop being who they are. It doesn't mean everybody's going to ask, How, what must I do to be saved when you enter into that room? But they will know something different has happened in that room by virtue of the person that the, the fact that this person has come into the room. Maybe not in one second, but in some period of time, something different has occurred here. There is a um, uh, there's been a disturbance, you know, in the dark side of the force with this person coming in, and there's just a sense that's there. And, and people recognize it. This last week I was talking uh, about the Lord with a neighbor of mine who is not yet saved, and, and uh, um, he recounted his experience. I was finding, well, have, have you ever, you know, heard about Jesus? Have you ever, um, you know, studied his life? Or you, did you ever go to church growing up and this kind of thing? And he started to tell me a story a little bit. And he said, you know, when I went into the army, he had a couple of real bad uh, experiences, not with Christianity, but with religion in his um, childhood and early adult life. And uh, he said, but I went into the army, and, uh, and he talked about his uh, experience within, in the army many, many years before, and how that the Christian chaplains, he said, they just had an aura of peace about them. They had an aura of rightness about them that made them different from everybody else. And he said it really appealed to me and it made him really respect them and appreciate them for the difference that, that they were. He didn't know why. He didn't understand why. He didn't understand that they were being the salt of the earth and the light of the world. All he knew is that they were different. 
And this is what he was experiencing there is exactly what Jesus is declaring here. And everyone experiences the same thing with you as a Christian. You bring a spiritual light and a spiritual life into every situation that you walk into. And it is as real and dramatic in the spiritual realm as turning on a light in the middle of the night does in the physical realm. And we, so often we don't realize it. And then we become confused by the reaction that people can have toward us that they don't have toward everyone else. I haven't even opened my mouth. Why are they treating me this way? And, and it's because of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And we are not morally and spiritually neutral in the environments that we're in. We don't have to say anything. We don't have to even do anything. I don't think we really understand what it means to be filled with the, of the Holy Spirit, to be baptized with the Holy Spirit, that there really is a torrent of living water that comes out of our innermost being. But that's the reality for, for our lives as Christians. We walk into environments and we are not morally and spiritually neutral. We bring a dynamic into a room that affects the spiritual and the moral atmosphere of that room. And it begins to exert tremendous influence in that spiritual realm. And there can be a lot of different reactions to our presence. Jesus declared himself to be the light of the world. And then he declares us to be the light of the world. And how are we the light of the world? Well, we're the body of Christ. And he was the light of the world and the power of the Holy Spirit. We're the body of Christ by virtue of a miracle of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit being as fully upon our lives as ever he was upon Jesus during his physical ministry, his bodily ministry, his incarnation for three and a half years. I want you to notice in verse 14 that he likens us to a city that's set on a hill that cannot be hidden. When you go to the Mount of Beatitudes in Israel today, and <clears throat> there's a, uh, and, and they have a sense for somewhere in the area there where Jesus probably gave this particular sermon. And uh, if you're ever there in the evening, usually we're there early in the morning, make it one of the first stops uh, of the day when we're doing a tour there. But uh, for three nights or so, we stay uh, in a hotel somewhere on the Sea of Galilee. And there's a little city, that, and there's several cities now that are built up into the hills surrounding the area. And at that time, even in Jesus' time, there was a little city, I believe the name of it is Safad. And it's right up on the hill, and at nighttime, as the lights go down, that city up on the top of the hill, the lights get put on into the rooms. In the ancient days, they would have used their lanterns, and the thing is all lit up on the hill. There's no missing it. You can't miss at night, even today, you can't miss a house that's been built up on a, a hill. And so a city situated on a hill is elevated above everything else around it, and because it's in that elevated position, it gets noticed as a result. And Jesus is saying in the same way, to live the Christian life is to live a life that is elevated. It is to live a life that is elevated morally, to live a life that is elevated spiritually above everything else in the world. And because we live that kind of life, we are going to get noticed 
as a result of that. There's no getting around that. For better, for worse, for good or for bad, we will get noticed and, and because of the life that we're living. He likens us in verse 15 to a lamp in a house. And we don't think, of course, in those days they didn't have an electric lamp. We come in, just turn on the light, and the lamp comes on in the room and the whole light lamp is lit up. The whole room is by the lamp. In those days, a lamp was just a little tiny clay vessel. I mean, no bigger than this. And uh, they put the oil in it and the wick, and they would light it. And that was the light. You didn't come in and like, now today you come in and you come in the front door, and if you, you have, you know, had the electricians do this kind of thing, and you hit one button, and the whole house lights up, not just the room you're trying to get into, and then you got, now where's the next switch, and where's the next switch? You hit this button, and the light, the house lights up for seven in the morning. You hit this button, and this is how the you want the house to light up at seven o'clock at night. This button, how you want it eleven at night. They didn't have those kind of things. So we, we just get used to light as just kind of like a right as a, a person in Western civilization in the modern age. In those days, this was the extent of the light. This a little like a candle-like thing, only running off of oil. And so light was very, very precious in those days. And so what would you do with light? You would take something that was lit. You'd never cover it, never put a basket over it, You'd take and you'd put it on some ledge that was high up in the room so the light would then fill the room as much as possible. Or maybe put it on a high table in the middle of the room so the light would then go out as fully as it could within in the room. Because the light is, was so valuable, you would do whatever you could to maximize the illumination. And uh, given the value of light, as I said, the very last thing you would do is put a, 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 a light a lamp and then put a basket over it. That would just defeat the entire purpose. And when Jesus puts us in our various places in life, it isn't so when he puts us in this school, in this workplace, in this environment, in this neighborhood, in this apartment complex, so that we will then hide our light or put some kind of a basket over it, but so that we will let our light shine. And thus Jesus closes with the exhortation to us to not only not hide our light, our Christian life, but to let it shine brightly wherever we are so that people can then see our good works, see the quality of our life that only can be ascribed to God and then glorify our God who is in heaven. Let me close this morning with a couple of applications. If I were to leave this passage here um, at this particular point and say, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. And here I, it is, I've informed you of this great truth concerning your life as a Christian. And now, listen, don't let Satan you out. This little light of mine. Don't put a basket over your light. Now get out there and be the light that you're supposed to be and be the salt that you're supposed to be. And I think I'd probably do more harm than good if I closed the sermon up in that kind of a way. I'll tell you what would happen for about half of us. We love the Lord, and we want to be salt. We want to be light. We want to be everything that he wants us to be. 
But we say, all right, Lord, I want to be salt. I'm going to be light. I can't wait. Help them just to shut this sermon down now. Let me get out there. I'm going to go be a light in Costco. And I'm going to go be a light at Baja Fresh or wherever everybody goes for lunch after church. Or whatever. That's probably a second service illustration. But I'm going to head out there and they're going to see light. And we get like three steps out there and we wonder to to ourselves and suddenly dawning upon us that we don't have the slightest idea what being the light of the world or being the salt of the earth looks like in the nitty-gritty of real life. And we begin to think all of that's great, but what in the world does being the salt of the earth and being light of the world look like in a human life in the nitty-gritty of the world that we live in. Now, knowing a little bit about sermon preparation, not that I'm <clears throat> very good at it, but I've been at it for 30 years, 30-plus 30 years now, I don't think it's any accident, and what we're studying right now in Matthew chapter 5 through 7 is a sermon of Jesus's. And it's a tremendous sermon, and it's a tremendous... A revelation to us, but it's a study. I mean, it's reasonable. It builds upon itself. There's points that he's making, and there's a main point to this sermon that he, he gives uh, uh, here. And I don't think that it's any accident that Jesus preaches this exhortation on being salt and being light following his teaching on the Beatitudes in verses 3 through 12 that we studied a number of weeks ago. We are salt and light as we live the life that is described in the Beatitudes and the power of the Holy Spirit. We are salt and light by being poor in spirit, walking in humility, being one who mourns, that is, we have empathy for people, we have compassion upon people for the consequences they're paying in their life for the fall of uh, Adam and Eve in that ancient garden. This being salt and light is found in being one who is meek, that is, one who is gentle, being one who hungers and thirsts for righteousness, that is, a holy life, being merciful, being pure in heart, inwardly pure, a peacemaker, being persecuted for righteousness' sake, and then handling that in a way that doesn't rob us of our joy and our excitement at the privilege of being a Christian. And what Jesus is saying here is as the Beatitudes become our character, then this will become our influence in the world. He doesn't leave it up to us as fallen men or even in women or even as Christians, the best of us as Christians, to now define what it means to be salt and to be light in the world because we would come up with the most goofy ideas and almost all of them would be outward. And almost all of them would look like the man or the woman that came up with whatever the definition of salt and light is. It would just be an extension of themselves. And not only would we not end up exerting any kind of true influence for Christ in the world, but we would simply marginalize Christianity away from all of the need and, and the corruption and the rottenness that God wants to apply to us in the world. People would look at us and reject Christianity, not on the basis of Christ, but on the basis of what we turned it into. 
based upon our definitions. And so Jesus in the Beatitudes, he gives us a way to be truly different in a way that really makes a difference, in a way that looks like him. I want you to notice also that phrase, and we emphasized it in the reading, but that word, that phrase, you are, which is repeated twice in the passage. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Jesus spoke to the disciples. Whether we realize it or not, or whether we feel it or not, it's true. And I think that this sense of feeling powerless in the world or um, experiencing a loss of influence in the world or feeling uninfluential in this world against the moral and the spiritual corruption that sometimes we can feel as Christians, we have to realize that's a lie. That just simply is not true. We are believing that on the basis of something other than God's Word. And I think that we believe it, and I'm as prone to it as anyone, we believe it only because we're thinking carnally rather than spiritually, because we are viewing power and influence the way that the world does, and that, it, that power and influence is solely vested in the physical realm and supremely in the realm of politics or in votes or in money or in having a majority within a country. But that's not the most influential thing in the world, and Christ knows it as he teaches it here. It's been said that the kingdom of God is an invisible kingdom that becomes visible by the obedience of God's people. And that's a wonderful thing to realize. Every single time you and I obey God's word in a particular situation, there's an explosion in the spiritual realm in that situation. There's a light that goes on. When you walk into a dark situation and people are deciding to go in this direction and you excuse yourself and say, I'm not going to be a part of that, and you go and do something else, or you refrain from entering into the conversation, or whatever it might be. You do something different than everyone else is doing it, but you are doing it because of what God's Word says and a desire to obey God's Word. Something happens in the spiritual realm that is explosive. It occurs influence is being exerted. We don't have to wait until the, the elections in 2016 to be influential in the United States of America. Are we going to throw two years away as Christians thinking that this is our next big chance? And we think these kind of things because, again, we're not thinking biblically. We already are influential. We already are the light of the world. We are already being powerful simply as we obey God and as we walk with Him. We just fail to appreciate that it's happening in a realm that we can't see but that we need to believe is happening because God says it is and to believe it by faith. We never do anything in obedience to God's Word in this world except that we are exerting influence 
in the moral and the spiritual realm of the world and the part of the world that we live in. And I'll tell you something. Apart from moral and spiritual influence, you can win all of the political uh, campaigns and elections you want. And listen, I'm all for a righteous person getting elected into these positions. But you can have all kinds of victories in terms of the political realm. But the heart of a nation, what a nation will become ultimately and is becoming, at, is, is what the nation is at its core, what it is spiritually, what it is morally. We are way ahead of the game in terms of our influence than the politicians are or anybody else's as Christians. We're dealing with the root issues in individual human lives, and it's individual human lives that then make up a nation and make up a world. We are the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world. We are exerting influence all day, every day, through our lives. And it's important to believe that. Jesus speaks here and he says, you, and he says, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. The idea is you and you alone. It's emphatic, it's just like that. It's you and you alone is what he's declaring to his disciples. No one else but Christians can be the salt of the earth or the light of the world. Because... Everyone else lacks the essential ingredient that makes us salt and light. And that is the presence of the Holy Spirit within our lives by virtue of his spiritual birth. And to say what I'm saying right now can be offensive to the secular world. It can be offensive to the religious world. But facts are facts. And this is not a time in human history for false humility among Christians. We and we alone are the salt of the earth and the light of the world, which means we better not be waiting for somebody else to do the things that we alone can do. This is the truth about us. Jesus said it here, and we need to believe it and embrace the responsibility, but also embrace the opportunity, which brings us then to our final point. The importance of being salt and light right where we are. And just as in that ancient world, salt needed to be applied to the fish or the meat in order to stop the corruption in the ancient world, a fisherman with his own hands, he'd take that fish and he would put it and apply that salt right onto that fish. He would do that. And in the same way that that would occur, in, in doing that, the salt needing to be applied to, to the fish in order to arrest the corruption in that ancient world, in the same way, we have to avoid the temptation to cease engaging the world and all of its messiness. And look at it's getting worse and worse. It's getting more and more rotten. Where's our Christian island? Where's our Christian island? <laughs> you know, no. We have to allow God 
to apply us as salt to the messiness of this world where and how he chooses. And if you believe that the job that you work at is where God wants you to be working right now, you have his peace, this is where I work, this is the job that God has given to me, and 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 if that's a sense that you have about that workplace and that job, then you have been divinely applied by God to be salt and light in that place. As sure as salt was put and pressed on that fish, God has applied you into that work environment. He has chosen that place for you, and he has put you in that place to be salt and light. And the same is true of the neighborhood that we live in, the school that we attend, the volunteer work that we do, whether it's at the hospital or whether we're volunteering to coach soccer or baseball or basketball in the community, to be on the school board or to be on the board of supervisors, whatever it might be. Wherever, God, we look and say, my life is being God-directed, then to realize in all of that, then that is your sphere of influence as salt and light. You've been chosen as God by God as his ambassador, as his influence there. And what you are doing there is as significant as anything else that anyone else is doing in the body of Christ. And to believe that and to carry yourself in that way. The influence of your life. On uh, Friday night, Dean and Suzanne got married. And I had the privilege of officiating there. I don't know how many people they could have invited to that wedding. Thousands of people, no doubt. But I think there was about 350 people there. And I looked out on that group and here... Every single one of them, person that's been invited, influenced in some way by Dean or by Suzanne and vice versa. Just one life, the tentacles of the body of Christ in all directions. The influence, but we don't see it. We don't stop and think about it. Yesterday, I had the privilege of officiating at Don's memorial service right here in this room. Hundreds and hundreds of people in this room. Just one man. I prayed with Don to receive the Lord. Again, my privilege. On Palm Sunday, 1989, none of us ever knew what his life would become, what God would do. And yet here in this room, hundreds and hundreds of people, all of them were here. We're all united together, united by one life. Now take your life and then take the body of Christ as a whole all around the world, even where there's a nominal Christian presence. And you begin to realize he's covered the whole earth in salt. You think about the networking. You watch the Verizon ads on TV or AT&T or whoever, and they show what this coverage is, and the blue goes out, and then this coverage is, and the red goes out over the whole world. The influence that God's people are having. But sometimes it stops and it takes a memorial service for us to realize what God is doing with our lives. Because we're so close to it, we don't see it. And yet he's doing it. 
And He's doing it with you in the place that He has put you in. And for you to realize, I am here as God's representative for His kingdom. This is my part of the mission field. And that recognition gives us a sense of meaning and purpose in, in life that we will never otherwise know if we don't realize that this is as true of my life as it's true of any pastor or missionary or evangelist. It's true of every single Christian and the importance of believing it, believing it, believing it about our lives. It's God's responsibility to make much of our lives. And he knows how to do it. They took those five loaves and those two fishes and brought it to them to feed 5,000. We look at the need of the world that we're in. Here we are. Look at us. Look at us. What are we going to do? And yet Jesus took those five loaves and those two fish and he fed the 5,000. And he takes us and he puts us right in our place. And he knows how to make much of our lives. And he's doing it. He's doing it. The importance, again, as we close today, for us not to walk away today with just a sense of, okay, verses 13 through 16, that's one verse, two verse, three verse, four verse. Okay, that's four more verses of the Bible that I understand in kind of a technical sense. That's not what we want. We want that, but we want more. We want every bit of unbelief in every single one of our hearts, our minds, our spirit that underestimates the influence that you are having in the world to be banished under the weight of the passage. You are. Not you will be. You might. If you huff and you puff and you blow the house down. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. And for us to stop and to believe that and to recognize this is the influence we're exerting. This is the power of our life. And to believe it about where he has put you in life. And to realize it is every bit as significant as where he has put me in life. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Lord, we know who you are. We know what we aren't. We know we are the weak things of the world the feeble things of the world. We live our life in the light of the majesty of who you are. We want to walk in humility, Lord. But then we start to get all of this confused and we begin to look at our lives in a way that is different from how you describe us in your word. And just because we're so small and so we're so insignificant in and of ourselves in the city that you put us in, 
in the neighborhood, in the apartment complex, in the job workforce, and in the school. And who are we to think that we could be an influence, and yet you tell us that we are. And I pray, Lord, and we pray for one another right now. I pray that these wouldn't just be words on a page that we now understand and we just lock away in our minds and never let reach out into our lives and into our spirit. Lord, I pray that you reach into each one of our lives right now and that you would banish all unbelief in this regard. And I want to ask those of you who are Christians, that's most of you standing in this room right now, I want you in the privacy of your heart, you can speak it out loud, muttered if you like, I want you to say, I am the light of the world. 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 I am the salt of the earth. I am the salt of the earth. I am the salt of the earth. And to not stop repeating that all the way through. For some of you, it might take hours today before you have a breakthrough in your spirit where you embrace that as the truth about you and then allow the Holy Spirit to raise you up into the loftiness of the calling that he's placed upon your life and just keep saying that to yourself, the truth of what Jesus said here, until you believe it about yourself and then are excited then to exert that wonderful Christ-like influence in the places, all of the places that God has placed you. Thank you, Lord, for this passage. Thank you for the encouragement that it is. Thank you for the privilege of being able to live a life that is powerful and influential, not in, in politics necessarily, not in money or in some corporate sense, but to be influential and powerful in the areas that really are the only areas that ultimately matter in human history, and that is morally and spiritually an influence for you in people's lives that they might come to know your Son and be saved as well. And so, Lord, we leave this sermon now in your hands and ask that it would have its full practical work in each one of our lives before you Uh, before any of us lets it loose and we ask it in Jesus name Amen if you stand here this morning and you are not